has a has a child ever asked you an incredibly simple question? Um, and actually, because of how simple it was, you could not begin to even answer the question. Uh, for instance, if Caleb were to walk up to me and ask me, what is love? I would flounder all over trying to describe what love is. It's something that is so common and so brought into our vocabulary that it, it's difficult to define. And also because it's very nuanced at the same time. Uh, and I have a, a hunch, a suspicion, that if I were to ask you what the church was, you would quickly come up with a definition and then maybe have to backtrack a little bit as I pushed on you and as we tried to be more precise. And then we would eventually conclude defining what the church is is pretty difficult. And I would also suspect that in your definition somewhere, it wouldn't necessarily just be shaped by scripture, but also some by tradition and, and culture. And I'm not condemning you, but also I don't want to you, let you off the hook. So uh, this evening, we're just going to look at what the church is, uh, very simply. Uh, if, you, if you want to break it down into the three points, the first one is, when did it start? The second one is, what, it, what makes up the church? And the third one uh, is what is the purpose of the church. And so I am assuming that as I, especially as I go through the first two points, there's going to be a lot of nodding and going, yep, I'm tracking with you. I've heard this. This is good. Uh, it'll be a much needed reminder and foundation, especially for uh, the last point there. Um, what is the purpose of the church? So with that said, let's, uh, let's dive right in here uh, and explore the origin of the church. When did the church begin? And if we're going to look into scripture for this, uh, the easiest way to find this is in Acts chapter 2, uh, that the church began at, at Pentecost. So uh, either on the screen behind me or in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Uh, this is during Pentecost. Uh, Peter says to those that he's preaching to, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then right after this, it says that day there were 3,000 added to the church. And so we see this right in the book of Acts, that spirit baptism at Pentecost, the pouring out of the spirit, is marking the beginning of the church. But the church was actually anticipated quite a long ways before Pentecost, because Jesus announced the coming of the church all the way back in Matthew, right after Peter had confessed Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, Jesus responded to Peter and he said this, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades uh, shall not prevail against it. And there's several truths here. We don't have time to fully explore them. That'll be the whole theme of the message here. Not enough time to fully explore something, but Notice that Jesus foretold the church in Matthew 16. I will build my church. He, he proclaimed it saying, this will happen and it will be mine. It's not something that arose out of the blue, but it was part of God's sovereign plan. And as part of God's sovereign plan, it has immense value. So Jesus foretells the, the coming of the church and also he foretells the coming of spirit baptism. We see this also in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 5. For John, this is, these are the words of Jesus, some of his last words to his disciples. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
And so once again, Jesus is showing times are changing. God is operating in some new and exciting ways here. I'm building the church, and part of that has to do with the outpouring of the Spirit. And right where we started, Acts chapter 2, Peter recognizes Jesus has told us all of this. He promised that there would be a church. He promised that there would be uh, the spirit baptism. And almost as he's preaching, I like to imagine the light bulb and Peter's brain going off. And he's like, this is it. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Peter's words. Jesus, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see in here. And then just a few verses later where we started, he says, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so with this uniting of of, of spirit baptism and and Jesus' promises coming through, Peter says, this is it. it. It started. The church has begun at Pentecost. And in case you're not understanding where we're going with this, this is why this first point is important, even though it's foundational you want to go, yep, yep. And even though at times it can feel like a whirlwind of of scripture here. But when an inventor creates a, a new item, even if it's by accident, like the microwave, the creator gets to determine how it's used. Now, other people can take that creation and they can use it in other ways, but they run the risk of making it harmful or or useless. So then if if Jesus is the the creator of the church, then we need to be very familiar with his designs and purposes for the church. And we also need to be prepared to submit to his desires for the church because often his desires for the church and our desires from the church, they don't match up. That's when we run into danger. Uh, Too many people, they let their own desires shape where they try to drive the church. And if you find yourself wanting to change something about the church, well, we should probably examine God's word to see if that change lines up with the creator's purposes uh, for the church. Five minutes, and that that was the first point. We'll slow down from here. So in, in other words, the church began at Pentecost. Because of Pentecost, there is a church. And so the next logical question is, well, what is the church? What makes up the church? And we see this particularly in, in 1 Corinthians 12, that the church contains both this visible and invisible aspect. All right, what we've just, what we've just covered, it's not just an introduction worth breezing over. But it's this foundation that everything else rests on. The the church was anticipated. It didn't arise out of the blue. It's not an accident. But God designed it to accomplish some specific purposes. And because he instituted it, he determines what its purpose is and what should make up the church. And so we see this twofold definition of the church. There is a full body of Christ. And then there is local churches. So we're going to take it these separately here. The invisible church consists of the full body of Christ. Every believer of all time, wherever they might be. 
And this invisible aspect consists of everyone who is identified with Christ. There are two main passages that we could look at, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. This is what Paul says. For by one spirit, the Holy Spirit, spirit baptism, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. In other words, there, there are many spirit-baptized believers. And, and regardless of social background or ethnic background or whatever background you might put, they're all now in the same body, the body of Christ. All who have been born of the Spirit are in the body of Christ. And that means that every believer from, from Pentecost and into the future is part of this invisible body of Christ which reminds us we are part of something far bigger than just ourselves. That's part of the reason I, I liked that video from uh, this morning. It showed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It, it's not just us, but we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. But it also means that it's impossible for us to escape our responsibility to other people in the church. This reality that we are part of the body of Christ that has these far-reaching implications for our lives. But most of those applications are best explored in the context of the visible church or um, in the local church. And this is what we're going to see still in Acts chapter 2. The visible church consists of local churches. All spirit-baptized believers are all part of this universal or invisible church, but local churches are what make up the visible church, which really drives us to kind of that opening question. How would we define the church? What makes up the church? And, and depending on how you divide this, people do this in, in different ways. You can get anywhere between four and seven, really, aspects of this. Uh, I like making things simple, so I went for four. And we see them in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 41. And these are the four big ideas. That the visible church, the local church, consists of baptized believers, word proclamation, observing the ordinances, and then organized leadership. And we actually see all four of these in Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. This is Luke's summary of what happened immediately after Pentecost. Then those who gladly received his, that's Peter's word, and accepted Christ, they were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Again, this is, this is immediately right after Pentecost, right after the church had started. And rapidly we see this pattern of what must exist in every single church in order for it to be called a church. So one at a time, let's look at these here. Local churches consist only of baptized believers. This is what verse 41 says. Those who repented, they were baptized and added to the church. And this is not just talking about spirit baptism. This is talking about what we witnessed this morning, this water baptism. This verse is, is speaking of that baptism. And so there's two things here. Spirit-baptized believers 
as part of the body of Christ, united to Christ and to his body. And then these, these water baptized believers added to the local church. And that's where we get this first aspect that the local church membership consists only of baptized believers. And if we're following the natural progression of a believer's spiritual life at regeneration and then baptism, which should be very close to after regeneration, it's like we have this this newborn baby in Christ. What is the next step to get this baby to grow and to mature? Well, it needs something to eat. It needs food to grow. And we see this in verse 42, right after the institution of the church, there's provision for that. Local churches proclaim the word and feed those who are part of the body of Christ. It says they continued steadfastly or resolutely, they were unwilling to compromise on the apostles' doctrine. The church came together to meet and they sat Maybe they stood, probably they sat, underneath the teaching of the apostles, and they heard the doctrine declared to them. The apostles were responsible for proclaiming the word in this first local church. And if you like cooking around Thanksgiving, even if you don't like cooking, I hope around Thanksgiving, your kitchen smells like pumpkin pie, apple pie, turkey, mashed potatoes, all those good things that we should not eat too much of. And... As you walk into church, you shouldn't be greeted by those kinds of smells unless it's a potluck Sunday, but it should be this overwhelming aroma of, of the Word of God, that it, would, it seeps into every nook and cranny. If your basement floods and you get mold and mildew on cardboard boxes, you cannot get rid of that smell ever. <laughs> it should be like that in the church, not with mold and mildew, but with the aroma of the word. It should saturate all the teaching. Scripture is not a launching pad for human wisdom, for human philosophy, but this is the content of teaching itself. In 1 Timothy 3, it describes the church as the pillar and ground of truth. How can that be true if this, what God calls truth, is not the very foundation of what the church is. Scripture has to be foundational to everything about church. And without proclamation of the word, there's no church. There's just a group gathered together for a self-help seminar. And that leads us to the third portion of what constitutes a local church, which is that local churches observe the ordinances. Verse 41 showed the baptizing. Verse 42 here shows they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Right, this, is, this is communion or, or the Lord's Supper. Uh, and they're fulfilling one of Christ's most somber commands. He says, whenever you eat this bread, remember my crushed body. Or whenever you drink this cup, remember my spilt blood. And Paul says, every time we do that, Every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are declaring Christ died. And we're supposed to do it again and again and again until Christ returns in triumph. And when a church does not do that, when it doesn't observe the ordinances, it's forsaking this direct command of the Lord of its 
head, and it's devaluing its creator. So local churches have these baptized believers. They proclaim the word. They observe the ordinances. But also, local churches organize leadership. Now, we see, this more, we see this here in Acts 2, but we see it more clearly in 1 Timothy 3. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Um, the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3, they describe the elder or the, the pastor. And then the next uh, eight verses describe the deacon. Uh, the elders are to be these leaders in the church that serve primarily through teaching. And this is what's, what's very interesting. If we look here at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we can notice that almost all of the qualifications for an elder or for a pastor are character-based qualifications, all of them except for one. A bishop, a pastor, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, every single one of those character-based right there, and the last one, able to teach. There are supposed to be men in the church who have this, this highest grade of character, and they lead the church by teaching. And this is a high calling that blameless, nothing sticks to them. That next phrase, husband of one wife, literally translated a one woman man. Eyes just for one. Undistracted by others. All of these character qualifications so that the teaching can go out without blemish. And in just a few moments, we're going to see this teaching has a, a very public aspect and also a private aspect, but it serves to, to protect and to nourish the flock. Now, interestingly, deacons have largely the same qualifications as pastors, apart from one. They don't need to teach. Deacons do not need the ability to teach because primarily, in their aspect of leadership, they're leading not by teaching and meeting spiritual needs, but by meeting physical needs and serving in that way. Elders meet the spiritual needs and, and deacons partner together to meet physical needs. And the church at Jerusalem quickly recognized that there was need for both of these things in leadership. I mean, you might think that our church, church is messy and a very nuanced organism, difficult to keep up with everything. That pales in comparison to the church in, in Jerusalem. I mean, if our church today was 100 people and tomorrow was 3,000 people, church at Jerusalem, that's an entirely different level of messy administration. And the start of the church in Jerusalem, it was so messy and, and so difficult that there was a man named Joseph, and he sold some of what he owned, and he brought the money to the church, and he said, here, use this in the best way that you know how meat needs, and they renamed Joseph because of his gift, Barnabas, son of encouragement. In other words, things were so difficult that when you gave this gift, it was such an encouragement, we're going to name you. You are the man of encouragement. And so this, this church saw these incredible growing pains right at the beginning, which is why God ordained that there should be this organized leadership, something to administer the chaos to make it reasonable, 
to meet the physical needs and also to meet the spiritual needs within the church. Maybe an illustration from the sports world will help you. Uh, When a sports team starts to flounder or to tank, the first person to go, typically not a player, yeah, it's the coach. There are, some of you may be thinking that your team's coach needs to go. (laughs) Uh, When when there's real trouble in a sports organization, the change happens in, in leadership and management. And so when this new owner or this new coach or new manager comes and you have exactly the same players, the starting in soccer, the starting 11, from one week to the next is exactly the same. The only difference is the guy leading them is different. And it's like it's a brand new team. They're unrecognizable. Change in leadership is so important to bring order to chaos, which means we should probably ask a question. What does all of that mean for you? Because... You're not running a sports organization. <laughs> when you see your church, this one or a church you might be with in the future through, through a move or something like that, but when you see a church begin to creep away from these foundational truths that, that constitute a church, uh, when you see that creep begin to start when the word doesn't stand at the very center of the life of the church, when it's not proclaimed publicly and privately, when it doesn't saturate everything, when, when leaders don't reflect the character of God. We remember God is the one who instituted the church. He declares what it must do, which means if, if a church is failing to fulfill those responsibilities, then it's up to you to raise your voice at those issues. Without people who are willing to say, this is what is right, this is what God desires, it's so easy for an an organization to lose its purpose. And an organization or the church, something which Christ bought with his own blood is far too precious to lose its purpose. So the church, it originated in the mind of God. It was born at Pentecost. It has this visible and invisible aspect. And each of those things helps us shape our view of what is important in the church. What, what is the set purpose of the church? We have to understand that, which is where we're going here with this third point. And we'll notice that all of the characteristics that make up a church, they all serve a a vital purpose in helping the church fulfill its overarching purpose, the purpose that God has given the church. So let's ask the question here, what does the church exist for? What is its purpose? We'll see in Ephesians 4 here, the church exists to equip the saints. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 11. He himself, that's Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, 
for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, if you're like me and you look at that passage at first, it seems a little bit vague. Um, who is doing the work of the ministry? Is it the pastors and teachers and other leaders? Are they doing the work of the ministry? Or is it the saints who are doing the ministry? Well, I, I, I think the easiest way to view this is that each phrase builds upon the last. Christ gave this unique gift of spiritual leaders, right? some in different times, apostles, pastors, prophets, evangelists. And he gave those men to equip the saints. And the saints are to do the work of the ministry. And that ministry builds up the church, making it successful in its purpose. And so this is my, my news for you tonight, which I hope isn't earth-shattering or groundbreaking. I hope you realize this. You cannot escape ministry. God might not have called you into vocational ministry, but he most definitely called you into ministry. If the church fails to fulfill its responsibilities, it's not going to effectively equip you to do the ministry that he called you to do. So then how can the church make sure it fulfills its purpose and equips you for the ministry? Well, the church equips saints through word proclamation. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Again, a, a very familiar passage, but the word of God is God's tool for equipping God's people. Paul says, all scripture, it's given by inspiration of God. And this is the picture. It, it, it's breathed out. And so if we were to hold a Kleenex right here and I were to breathe out, the movement of that Kleenex would be capturing the movement of my breath. That is what the word of God is. It is the capturing of what God has breathed out, his truth. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. For what purpose? So that the man of God, the woman of God, the saint who is called to ministry, all of us may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God is to thoroughly equip the saints. It's supposed to give us all that we need to set, on, set out on this life of ministry that God has called us to. And yes, you can read the scripture yourself to equip yourself for ministry. But the church is supposed to be this dispensary of grace and truth from the fountain of God's word to equip you as well. And so as previously noted here, this word proclamation happens in public, but it also happens in private as well. Uh, we're going to stay largely here in uh, 2 Timothy. Just a few verses here after Paul says, all scripture is for every Christian. He says, Timothy, if you want to get all of scripture to these people, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. In other words, Timothy, keep on preaching the word. If you want the church to be thoroughly equipped, you must preach the word or else you will never be successful. Or maybe if Paul grew up in the South like I did, he would have said it the way that a song I grew up listening to says it. 
Uh, preach, preacher, preach it. 66 books from cover to cover. Teach, preacher, teach it. And then preach it again from one end to the other. Don't water it down. Don't modern it up. Let it say what it has to say. Get out that old gospel gun and fire, fire away. But Paul is not from the South. He's from Israel. Uh, so he said it in a better way. He says, preach. Be patient. The change isn't going to happen overnight. But keep on preaching. Don't grow discouraged. But interestingly, before Paul even gets to this point that the word must be proclaimed publicly, Paul challenges Timothy even before then that proclamation also occurs privately in discipleship. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. The things that you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so this verse is, is teaching this important aspect of word proclamation, which we call discipleship. And so Paul says, Timothy, you're a pastor. And I want you to rub shoulders with other men through the teaching of the word, that their lives will be transformed. And this life-on-life, shoulder-to-shoulder examination of the word will help you grow. Timothy, I did this for you. You should do it for others. And you should make them do it for others as well. It's this, this generational effect. It's building on each generation. And this idea, we see it in the Great Commission as well. Jesus commands his followers to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then to go out and teach them to do all that I have commanded you. Well, what has Christ commanded? To make more disciples. And teach them to do all that was commanded, which includes making more disciples. And so if you're content with making disciples, you haven't fully gotten it. Because the thrust of Scripture tells us that we cannot just make disciples, we must make disciple makers. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, for many years, the population of China was shrinking. I just saw on the news for the first time in a whole bunch of years, it's shrinking once again. But it was shrinking back then for several reasons. But the biggest reason was that it had established laws that, that limited the number of children that a couple could have. And guess what? Here's some rocket science for you. When more people die than are being born, your population shrinks. Well, the same goes for spiritual birth as well. And some churches are dying because they're making disciples and not making disciple makers. So here's maybe some unwanted news for you today. You're probably not doing enough in your discipleship efforts. If you are meeting to disciple someone and you are focused on studying the word, that's wonderful, but it's not enough if you don't give it the right purpose. You must be training through the word that that other person would also go and make disciples. I was, I was encouraged this past week. I was sitting in my office with someone, and I said, okay, this is the last in our series of this Bible study, but I don't want to stop having a Bible study. I want to start another one. And this is my long-range goal. 
I know this is dangerous because when we publicly declare our long-range goals, sometimes it scares people away because <laughs> it seems too ambitious. But this is my long-range goal. I want to study through these things with you. And when we're done, I want you to be able to go, okay, I've learned how does someone come to Christ? How does someone live to glorify Christ? And how does someone study their Bible on their own to realize how to do those things. And I want you to go, I can go teach those to somebody else. And I said that this week, he didn't run away. So that was encouraging to me. <laughs> but when, when very few people are, are discipling others to, to go make more disciples, when there's not enough people doing that, the church will stagnate, grow old, and decay. So we have to purpose as believers to go out and to make disciples who will make disciples. And if you've gone through the exchange training, you know how to do this. But the question is, are you doing it? So just two more responsibilities here that help the church accomplish its purpose, and then we'll be done. Uh, the church also equips the saints not just through word proclamation, but also through prayer. Prayer serves to equip the saints. Uh, I, I can give you dozens of examples uh, of rich portions of scripture, but I won't here. Uh, instead, I'll just give you this, this highlight list of some of those examples. John chapter 17, go read it tonight. Beautiful. Jesus praying for his disciples. Um, another way that prayer is so important in the equipping of saints, the apostles and the early church refused to give up prayer in order to meet these overwhelming spiritual needs. The early church, as we read in, in Acts chapter 2, they committed themselves to prayer. Paul commends Epaphras for laboring over the church that the church would be able to stand complete before God. Just read the beginning or the end of any of Paul's epistles and you'll see his heartbeat for the church. He, he wrote down his prayers for the church um, and shared it with them. Uh, but I think the most beautiful of Paul's prayers uh, comes in Ephesians chapter 3. If you know me well, you'll know what I'm talking about. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 20. He prays, God, would you grant strengthening to this body of believers through your spirit? That, that Christ would, would dwell in their hearts in a way that they are hyper aware of. That the church would be, would be rooted in love. That love would be felt everywhere in this ministry. And that they would understand just how vast Christ's love is. Uh, every single dimension of it, even though it can't be fully understood. Which I love that Paul says, this thing cannot be understood, but I want you to try. And then the next phrase goes, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I've just called you to understand this thing that can't be understood, but... God answers prayer in unique ways. So do your best. This is this very serious prayer for a church that focuses on, on spiritual needs. And it's so important for us to be praying for others in this church because saints need supernatural spiritual strength to be able to accomplish supernatural spiritual ministry. Church pastors, lay people, we pray to equip each other. And then lastly here, the church equips saints through fellowship. 
The writer of Hebrews, he encourages churches to meet together because that meeting together enables the church to, to stir up or provoke good works in one another. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews recognized that living in a dark world was no joke. Living in the world as someone who is supposed to be living for heaven but still being here in this world, it has a corrosive effect on your life. The world wants to, to steal your heart away from Jesus. But the cost is, is far too great for that to happen because Jesus brought us into his family by his own blood. And the author of Hebrews says, if you want to love Jesus well, if you want to grow, spend time with the family that he bought you for. When you're around people who love God and serve God as they're doing gospel ministry side by side with you, you're going to tend to do it a little bit better yourself. So I think it's fitting that we, we praise God that we're not called to be Lone Ranger Christians. And the world is lonely enough when you seek to serve Christ. It's even lonelier when you go, I don't need the church either. So if you want this church to be successful in equipping saints for ministry, then be here and let's encourage each other to serve alongside each other. So God in his infinite wisdom created the church and required of it exactly what it needed to do in order to be successful and fulfilling its purpose. When the saints are equipped for and engaging in ministry, we will successfully work out this great commission, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So a couple of truths for you to take to heart uh, this evening. Would you praise Christ for his wisdom and how he has created and equipped the church? And would you help fulfill God's purpose for the church by making disciples who will go out and do likewise? Christ wants all of us to be more effective in ministry. Um, he doesn't want us to be like uh, a fisherman's fellowship that I read about once. Um, this fisherman fellowship was, was said to, to get together and talk about fishing. And they went out and they found others who were interested in fishing. And they read books about fishing. And they bought bigger boats for fishing. They trained other people to fish, but they never actually went out and started fishing themselves. We don't want to be a fisherman's fellowship. We don't just want to talk about Jesus, to only read about Jesus, but we want to use our lives in service for him alongside of those that he has called into the family. Uh, would you stand with me here as we pray? Father, we're reminded this evening of some very foundational truths some truths that at times we uh, just gloss over because uh, we're familiar with them. But Lord, they're vital for us as we seek to accomplish the purpose that you have given us. So we ask that you would uh, fill us with boldness and eagerness to live a life that is poured out for the sake of others, that we would be investing spiritually 
in others and seeing them grow to the point where they're ready to do the same for somebody else. And so our prayer is that you would help us uh, to encourage each other by our talk of the word, uh, by our preaching of the word, by our prayers for each other, and just by being around each other and, and faithfully encouraging one another that you would make us effective. Thank you uh, for this morning and the, the picture that we were uh, reminded of, that you are faithfully building your church. Would you help us to be passionate about being part of that process? We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.